0: that's very good news is the good news being that your failures in the Christian life don't have to define you for the rest of your life even though they can be big failures. Um, Peter failed many times and Peter's kind of known unfortunately maybe for us maybe we shouldn't depict him like that but Peter failed many times. Mark fails hard here and so and we all fail. We, we've all failed from one degree to another. And you give yourself enough time, you will fail hard. Um, it will happen. There's just too many issues in the Christian life. There's too many debates. There's too, many, too much sin in your life and in the sin of others. You will, make them, you will sin. We will sin. Well, if you saw the signal message, we are going to continue through the book of Acts today. Pretty much halfway through the book... If you look at just a word count and chapters, maybe one of these days I'll break off and do a different topical message or something, but I'm enjoying Acts and it seems like you kind of get caught up in the narrative and there's not really good places to stop. So we'll keep going. Uh, If you want to go, go ahead and open up your Bibles to chapter 15, I'm just going to read the opening verse here, verse 36, to kind of. Wet our whistles, and then we'll pray. The title of the message today is Paul's Second Missionary Journey, A Rocky Start. Acts 15 verse 36 says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we, where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Well, let's pray. Well, Father, my mind thinks the same as Brother Raymond when we think about the Apostle Paul and his faithfulness to the churches. We, um, we desire to have a love for the church, for your bride, as the Apostle Paul did Lord, when we, we've we looked at the first missionary journey, Lord, and, and everything that Paul suffered, and yet now we so quickly see him desiring to take on another missionary journey for the love of the church and for the good of the church. And he suffered much, Lord, and left us a very high example and high calling of what love for the church looks like. Lord, we pray as we read about the Apostle Paul and also these other men with him, Lord, that we would be stirred to sacrifice for the sake of your name, for the sake of your church, as, as these brothers did. Lord, bless the preaching of your word today. Let it be good for us and a benefit to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so where did we leave off? Well, Chapter 14, uh, the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, completed their first missionary journey. They made it all the way home to their home church there in Antioch. They were able to enjoy their time in fellowship with the the home church that sent them out. They were able to encourage and be encouraged there in Antioch. Um, They were able to rest with the brothers, but it wasn't long before some trouble came to the church and they weren't able to fully enjoy this rest they had because some men came into the church teaching that you must be circumcised in order to be saved. And so the Apostle Paul had more work to do. Him and Barnabas uh, hotly debated these men and they went so far as to take the journey down to Jerusalem where the other apostles were a 300-mile journey they went down to Jerusalem to uh, gain the favor of the other apostles in this argument and to uh, settle this this debate once and for all. And thank God that every everyone agreed that there was unity amongst the apostles. This this question of circumcision was put to rest, and all of the apostles had unity under the doctrine of justification by faith. And, Paul and Barnabas were able to return home to their church and return to that peace uh, that they had there. And so they're back home, and they're resting, and the Apostle Paul, he gets the itch. The Apostle Paul gets the itch for another missionary trip. And so today we're going to begin what becomes known as Paul's second missionary journey. And that's why I entitled this message, Paul's Second Missionary Journey. But as we'll see, there is a rocky start to how this journey takes off. And so this afternoon, we'll see how far we can get in this missionary endeavor. I have an idea that we certainly won't conclude it, uh, but let's see how far we can get. Let's, Let's begin with verse 36 again, where we where we just read by introduction. It said there, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. My note already for this verse was to recognize that the Apostle Paul didn't simply uh, evangelize people and then leave them to the grace of God. The Apostle Paul um, is thinking about these people, these converts. He's praying for these converts. He desires to see them again. He's in history, he's going to write them letters. The Apostle Paul doesn't just evangelize and just leave people. Uh, to the providence of God. He, he, wants to do, he wants to follow that evangelism all the way through into discipleship and to making sure these people are in sound churches and are pastored and are, are growing in the grace of God. And I point that out for myself because I find it very, in a sense, very much easier to evangelize. It's very, in a sense, easy to show up to the school and share the gospel with people, right? And uh, leave and go home. And hope you know those people get saved and some good comes of their lives and they're used by the lord but it's a whole nother level of commitment to preach to somebody to convert them and then to disciple them that requires many 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 more hours of your life and of your time and dedication it's very easy in a sense to preach at people um, but to be willing to do that that work of, of really shepherding people and kind of that more pastoral aspect is is a full-time job and is a whole level of responsibility that the apostle paul is happy to do the apostle paul's heart is for the church is for the bride of christ Um, and he's he's willing to risk his life one more time just to go see these people and minister to them Um, this is no no small thing but that's paul's desire paul says to barnabas let's go let's uh Let's go see these people again. Let's make that brutal journey one more time. But as we see here in verse 37, not so fast, it says, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Do you remember that? This issue that's being brought up here with John Mark, flip back one page probably to Acts chapter 13, verse 13. That's where you'll see it. Um, Acts thirteen thirteen. This is where, this is what they're referring to. It said, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Persia in Pamphylia and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John left them, and that 's all it said in Acts chapter thirteen. no explanation we We knew what was going to come of this or what was happening because we knew uh, this chapter in Acts chapter fifteen, but at that time it didn't say what happened um, it's interesting back in chapter fifteen there in verse thirty eight our e s v say that John Mark had withdrawn from them that doesn't sound too bad the n a s b kind of takes more uh license in its interpretation. It says uh, that John Mark deserted them, that John Mark deserted them. And the Bible, even in this follow-up text concerning this issue, it doesn't tell us exactly why uh, John Mark deserted them or why he withdrew. Um, There certainly could be legitimate reasons, right, that a missionary has to come back home. We could probably think of a lot of them. But Whatever Mark's excuse was, Paul did not see this as a legitimate reason to abandon the mission. Another interesting thing to kind of think about here is you think about Paul not wanting to take Mark on the mission. He, he wasn't qualified to be a missionary at this point. And I'm kind of thinking how it's interesting how the Bible uh, defines the requirements for offices, you know, for roles in the church like apostles, um, elders, deacons. But there's these other kind of roles mentioned. You have evangelists and missionary. Well, I think evangelists and missionary is... I, I probably think when the Bible uses the word evangelist, it's thinking missionary the way we use the word. But the Bible doesn't define the requirements for a missionary, which is kind of interesting, right? Like, it defines all these other roles. Um, but whatever, whatever standard Paul had for one to to be a missionary, John Mark uh, had not not met that standard. And to Paul, he could not be entrusted with this work. Um, And the Apostle Paul here is taking a very firm position on that, uh, thinking that John Mark is not qualified. Now, the problem ends up being that, as we're going to see here, Barnabas likewise is taking a very firm position on him wanting to take John Mark. Uh, Look at verse 39. It says, There arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And I've said it before, I, I, I still hold to it, that I think this is one of the it's one of the saddest scenes in the book of Acts if you, if you stop and consider um, the history of these, that these brothers had together, Paul and Barnabas, and now that they're splitting, because if you remember Barnabas, when, when Paul gets converted, he's the Christian murderer. He murders Christians. he's been chasing down Christians. But he gets converted, and the only person who came beside Paul and, and and brought him to the other apostles and stood up for him and came by his side was Barnabas. Barnabas is the one who brought him in. Uh, he's the, the, the son of encouragement. He's, he's the one who brought Paul in to the other apostles and and gave him that right hand of fellowship. Paul and Barnabas started the church in Antioch together, and you can you can imagine, you know, starting a new church. What kind of camaraderie that? What kind of risk you're taking? What kind of trust you have to have for each other to start a church together? They shared that that work of starting this church in Antioch together. They've just risked their lives together in that first missionary journey. You talk about something that'll bring people together. You go risk your lives together. Uh, you suffer together. You be in prison together. Um, you will you will have a bond. Um, they continue to teach, disciple the church in Antioch together. They just made a three hundred mile journey to defend the gospel together. They went down to Jerusalem together, and, and despite all of that, that brotherhood and union that they would have had, they decide to separate on this issue of Barnabas wanting to take John Mark on the missionary. Journey, and, and you can imagine how the, the closer the relationship is, the more brutal, the harder a separation, a, a fight becomes between you. Um, think about a couple of things here as you think about maybe Barnabas. Um, Colossians chapter 4, verse 10 tells us that uh, Mark, uh, John Mark, is Barnabas's cousin. So they're cousins, so they're family. So you can kind of imagine. I've seen how family, you make exceptions for family. You look at family a little different than maybe you look at other people. Um, Yeah, I I even noted the fact here how Barnabas himself has already shown maybe like kinks in his discernment armor. Uh, if If you remember, Galatians 2 has already happened historically. So Barnabas has already had an episode where he was led astray. Uh, the Apostle Peter, if you remember, was breaking table fellowship because of the Jews who had come, and Barnabas was even led astray, it says. So Barnabas is already, he's compromised at a time, you know, and so maybe Paul is taking that into consideration. Um, but but nonetheless, Barnabas's judgment has, has shown kinks in the past, but what At the end of the day, what we have here is the Apostle Paul having to make a very tough decision. And obviously those kind of decisions have to be made at times as leadership in the church. You have to make decision of what's good for the gospel, what's good for the protection of the church. And the Apostle Paul knows that he needs a faithful brother that can be entrusted with not only the gospel, but his very his very life. And you, and you always have the Barnabases in the church, right? You always have the folks who are kind of more inclined. They're, they're opposed to take, taking what you might consider here a very hard or uh, ungracious approach by the Apostle Paul and denying John Mark this opportunity. But it doesn't to me, when I read the book of Acts, it doesn't appear to me that the book of Acts or Luke is, is depicting Paul as having made a wrong decision. That's not how it comes across to me here. Um, and I don't think, I don't think this is, is a rash decision either um, by the Apostle Paul. And, and, and it also doesn't mean that, that he doesn't love, by making this hard decision to exclude John Mark, it doesn't mean that the Apostle Paul does not love Barnabas, does not love John Mark. It's just a, a different, a difficult leadership decision he has to make. Um, I say it's not a rash decision either. Either look at verse thirty-seven and verse eight, because there is a little exegetical kind of grammatical point to make here. If you, if you look at the verbs of verse thirty-seven, what Barnabas is doing in verse thirty-eight of what Paul is doing, it says in verse thirty-seven, now Barnabas wanted—that's the verb—Barnabas wanted to take John Mark. And the verb in in Paul's verse is that Paul thought best not to take. John Mark both of these verbs are in the imperfect tense in the imperfect tense in, in the Greek language is is speaking of a, an action a verb that has taken place in the past but has continued to the present time so when Luke is speaking of this disagreement between Paul and Barnabas this is not a one time it would be like a, probably an aorist form it just means they disagreed in, in one point in time kind of a peculiar tie. But no, this is an ongoing debate that Paul and Barnabas were having. And so as it went on, for whatever reason, I kind of tried to come up with a couple reasons and why Barnabas might have thought what he did. But for whatever reason, Barnabas just would not submit to the the thinking in Paul's judgment. And so the bad news is that these dear and certainly, they were the dearest of brothers. They separated on, on bad terms. But the good news is, and I have a little section here to consider this, the good news is that these, these relationships will be restored. Not just Paul with Barnabas, because that might seem like the easier one to restore, but also Paul with Mark as well, um, Paul's going to write you know Paul's going to write these epistles to these churches and in three of his epistles he's going to mention John Mark in in a favorable favorable way Um, and I actually wrote down my favorite one it's at the very end of 2nd Timothy uh, right at the end of Paul's life listen to the way that he speaks of John Mark Um, he's requesting for John Mark to be sent to him Obviously, Mark has, has restored Paul's confidence. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. Paul says to Timothy, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. That's encouraging, right? This one who once abandoned, who, who Paul did not want to take. Paul's now requesting him specifically by name. Peter in his first epistle, he's going to mention Mark and speak well of Mark. And there is a relationship with Peter and Mark as well. Um, this Mark is the Mark who will go on to write the gospel of Mark. And so by no means is despite this man's failure here, he's not being cast, cast out of the kingdom or even cast out of being used by God. And so that's, that's very good news is, The good news being that your failures in the Christian life don't have to define you for the rest of your life, even though they can be big failures. Um, Peter failed many times, and Peter's kind of known. Unfortunately, maybe for us, maybe we shouldn't depict him like that. But Peter failed many times. Mark fails hard here, and so, and we all fail. We we've all failed from one degree or another. And you give yourself enough time, you will fail hard. Um, it will happen there 's just too many issues in the christian life there 's too many debates there 's too many, too much sin in your life and in the sin of others. you will, make them, you will sin. We will sin. and so the question is how, how can you overcome such a compromise in your life and, and be worthy of of serving the Lord and, and being put back into service um, well, it, it can be tough for sure, and I think, you know, especially if you're thinking about mission works or laying hands on someone, surely the church is, a church is within their rights to not lay hands on a brother who has is, who is sinned greatly or grievously. Um, that, that's a decision, I believe, for each church to make on who they're sending. But there are, and I think we have to, to wrestle with the reality that there are many examples in the scriptures of men sinning greatly and yet being restored to service. I think, you know, rightfully so, we consider the requirements of pastors and deacons, these things, right? It's a very high standard, and we think, ah, if you've ever messed up, you're disqualified. Uh, I don't necessarily think that's the case, even though I think I might... Naturally, kind of inclined to think like that. Um, But I have a quote here. This is from uh, Lectures to My Students. Lectures to My Students is Charles Spurgeon's uh, book that he wrote for his past. uh, Charles Spurgeon had a a pastor's seminary, a pastor's college where he trained pastors. And this was kind of like the book that uh, they would read that he wrote for his students that kind of summarized all his. His teaching and requirements for pastors, I would say it's a must-read for anyone desiring to go into the ministry. It would even be a good book maybe like if we're trying to look for a book to do like a men's study or something like that. Lectures to My Students is a good, a good book to read, encouraging book. And anything Charles Spurgeon writes is encouraging note for sure. But here's the quote on this topic of restoring someone who sinned even to ministry. Um, And and in Spurgeon's book, he's actually quoting another brother, John Angle James, which I don't know that brother, but Spurgeon's quoting him so he can't be too, too off. But this is what he says. He says, when a preacher of righteousness has stood in the way of sinners, he should never again open his lips in the great congregation until his repentance is as notorious as his sin. You see what the point he's trying to make there. In essence, he's saying, if you've fallen and and you've disqualified yourself, um, yes, you should stay down until your repentance has far exceeded your sin. And maybe another way to think about that is, you know, as you're thinking of a brother who maybe sinned, you know, when you look at that brother, does his sin come to your mind? Is that still what? tarnishes your view of that brother? Or when you look at that brother, is it his repentance and his godly sorrow and his correction of that sin is what you think of? Maybe that's a helpful way to view uh, the way you might look at somebody who has who fallen. But whatever, for, for, for John Mark, whatever that Standard is that Paul had in his mind for, for qualifying for ministry, whatever that standard was, and, and as I said, it doesn't really get articulated in, in the book of Acts or even in his epistles. Paul's view of a qualified missionary per se, it's probably similar to that of, right? Because when you look at elders, deacons, it's almost identical, right? That, that's just the calling, the, the godly man. Um, surely it's a similar very similar standard there. But whatever that standard is, John Mark had met that standard and he was put back into the ministry and the Apostle Paul was ready to use him. And so that's, that's, that's very good news. I don't think we see that a lot of times. Unfortunately, I think we see that. We see the negative cases, right? We see these kind of wishy-washy churches where the guy like cheats on his wife and then they restored the ministry like a month later. You know, that's what we see and we're like, oh, that's so obviously wrong, you know, but I think that this maybe is a picture of a right and good. And the timing isn't given uh, for how long before Mark was restored. But I just leave it as a case where this did happen. A brother sinned, was kept out of the of the, the, the ministry, but was restored. And so it can happen. And maybe we should wish for that to happen more than wish that it didn't. So Mark and Barnabas headed out on their own they left to do their own thing, and that's really all you hear about them. And surely they're preaching the gospel. Surely they're doing good work, um, for sure. Pray that the Lord graciously blessed that work. But this brother's going to take Barnabas' place, this, this brother named Silas. Silas is going to join the Apostle Paul. If you flip back maybe a page, the chapter, well, It might be on the same page. Verse 22, Silas was mentioned. I didn't make much of it at the time, but they had the Jerusalem council, and and that's where Silas Silas gets mentioned. Verse 22, it says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brothers. So he's mentioned there as a, as a leading man, somebody who the whole church affirmed as brother Silas. And then verse 32 as well, speaking of these men, Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, it says, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And so that's, that's what's been mentioned about this Silas so far. He, he seems to be a legit a proven candidate for this missionary journey. And so these are the brothers who are going to uh, set off on this journey. Um, So let's, let's get started with the journey. That was kind of the rocky start, you could say. That division, but let's get started with the journey. Verse 41. It says, and he, it's Paul and Silas, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And so they're going to start naming a lot of cities, right? We're going to start doing the the usual journey here. Um, I'm not going to take time, but if you start zoning out, and I see you all zoning out. um, uh, If you you need something to distract you from the rambling, flip back to the back of your Bibles and, and look at the map. I remember doing that as a, as a kid, like being interested in like the maps, flip back to the map and follow where these brothers are, are, are journeying uh, to complete this, this, this mission here. So they've taken off, they're working their way through Syria, they're heading, they're heading west is where they're going They're If you remember, if you know where Jerusalem is on the map, 300 miles directly north is Antioch, that's where the church is, and they're heading out west, They're heading through Syria and Cilicia. Um, And and Paul seems to have found a faithful companion here in this brother Silas. But already, we're going to begin in chapter 16 here. He's going to pick up another faithful companion. And and as the way you hear of this brother, the way Paul describes this brother, he may be a more faithful companion than even Silas. Um, Look at verse 1. It says, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So now we meet Timothy, and of course, this is the Timothy. This is the Timothy who the Apostle Paul is going to write those couple of epistles to. Uh, Timothy is actually going to become the pastor of the church in Ephesus for a time, uh, that's the church that Paul will, will found in Ephesus. Timothy will take over as as pastor. In um, the text there, in verse one, tells us Timothy's background. It says his mother was a Jew, but she was a, a Christian. She was a believer, but his father was a Greek, um, aka a non believer. So he's got this mixed this mixed uh, mixture of in his in his parents. But despite his parents being Jew and Gentile, um, for Timothy, that didn't stumble anyone because verse 2 says, he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and in Iconium. Now that's interesting because Timothy was not only well spoken of in his hometown of Lystra, that's where he's from, that's where Paul finds him, but it says he's also well spoken of in the neighboring town of Iconium and that's a lot to say for, for a young man to not only be recognized and known as being faithful in your little city, but if the next city knows you and knows that you're faithful, that's, that's a good young man right there. And to mention him being a young man, think about this, because the question always is, well, how young was Timothy? How young was he? Well, think about this. The Apostle Paul is going to write 1 Timothy to Timothy 14 years from now, when I say from now, I mean from the time that Paul finds him and takes him on his missionary journey, um, 14 years later, Paul's going to write to Timothy and say, Timothy, young Timothy, don't let anybody look down on your youth. So what's happening now is 14 years prior to Paul calling Timothy young, that means Timothy is whatever it is, he's very young. I don't know the age, but he has to be extremely young which Which is exceptional and is, and is amazing that this this brother will be spoken of in such a way as, as, he, is, as he is here, and I think it should be encouraging to anyone who's, who's young and feels like maybe you're too young to be used by the Lord. Um, God uses this very young man in in mighty ways, and if you desire that. To be used of the Lord in that way, well, this is how Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, here's the trick if you want to be used in this way. Paul tells Timothy, he says, Cleanse yourself and be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. If you want to be used by the Lord, you have to cleanse yourself. You have to sanctify yourself. You have to make yourself available for every good work. You need to be ready to serve. It takes a lot more to be used by the Lord than just the desire to be used, right? Everybody, every Christian wants to be used. But if you're going to be used, there's standards, there's requirements, there's a level of sanctification that is required. And Timothy meets this Requirement. Timothy is for real. And I would say verse 3, as we're about to read, proves it. Verse 3 says, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and he circumcised him. Why? Because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. The obvious question that comes up here is, why has the Apostle Paul... Already forgotten everything that just happened in Acts chapter 15. Uh, You remember the Jerusalem Council? What was the debate at the Jerusalem Council? Well, it was the issue of circumcision. Is circumcision necessary? And the definitive answer of the, the, the Jerusalem Council was no, circumcision is not necessary. And then what do we find? We're not even out of chapter 15 yet. Or no, we are. We just left chapter 15, but already one page flip. Paul's circumcising Timothy, right? That's weird. Why He just said, we don't need to do that. Well, why is he doing it? Um, that's that's always the question that comes up here. Um, verse 3 told us the answer. What did it say? He says, it. he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew his father was a Greek. So the reasoning is Paul is trying to be weary of the consciences of those whom he 's attempting to minister to we 've made the point every time Paul travels is that the first place he goes is to the synagogue. The first place Paul goes to preach is to the jews and, and you know if you remember the requirements and the way the the synagogue is is divided up uh, the 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 god fearers um, they are, they are not in the same area as the Jews who have been circumcised. If you haven't been circumcised, you're not. Is, it's like you would be out in the foyer from here listening to the sermons, right? And, and that's the kind of separation that there was. There was literally a wall. And if you weren't circumcised, you weren't coming in. But Paul's desire was that the gospel would come in, that Timothy could come in and, and be right there for the preaching, for the teaching, for the ministering to the Jews. And so what would it take for that to happen? circumcision circumcision and Timothy that's why I say Timothy was for real Timothy was willing he was willing to remove any possible hindrance of being heard by the Jews Paul obviously was not circumcising Timothy for his justification Uh, Timothy was already saved he was already a thriving fruitful Christian Um, Paul was attempting to live out let me read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 19 through 21. This is how Paul thinks about missions. This is how Paul thinks about how to relate to everyone who he's attempting to minister to. Verse 19, Paul says, "For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jew I became a Jew in order to win the Jews." To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. And so the Apostle Paul's mindset is, I will do whatever it takes, I'll culturally adapt to. Whatever group I'm working with, obviously assuming that he's not violating some moral command of God, but as far as um, you know, these ordinances of, of old covenant uh, laws like circumcision, circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing, right? That's not the point. The point is the motive, and Paul's saying, if your motive is to preach the gospel to the Jews. That's a good reason to be circumcised. That does not invalidate the prohibition of circumcision. It's, that would be a good thing to do. So Timothy is circumcised. And so now we have Paul, we have Silas, we have Timothy as the missionary team. And then f- verse 4 here, verse 4 is going to mention how they are encouraging the churches that they're visiting. Verse 4 says, As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. So the way they were encouraging the churches was by remember that letter that we read from the Jerusalem council, right? They, they had formalized a letter to be taken to the churches who were stumbling over circumcision. Um, they brought this letter, these decrees, and he's reminding the churches. And what the point of that letter was reminding Gentile converts that they were not uh, under the law; they were justified by faith apart from works of the law. And that's these are the kind of things that Paul was encouraging the churches with—that they're saved by grace. And if you if you want to know more details. About maybe what Paul would have been encouraging the churches with, just read his epistles and you 'll get his his doctrine of uh, of of grace and you'll get his 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 pastoral wisdom and his pastoral encouragement you'll you'll get his pastoral uh theology that's these are the things Paul would have been encouraging uh, the church with you you certainly would have been if you know paul 's theology, you know he loves union with Christ, and so Paul would have been preaching. Union with Christ, all the benefits that come with, you know, what he would have been preaching very similar sermon to what Brother Jason preached the other day, um, that the benefits that come with, with having fellowship with the Godhead. That's John's language of union with Christ. Paul, Paul speaks of the same things, all of these blessings that are found in him, in Christ, in the beloved one. You get fellowship of the Godhead. You get Christ's righteousness. You get everlasting life. All of these things. These, this is what would have been encouraging the churches just as uh, Brother Jason encouraged us the other day. These are, these are good truths to encourage the church. So the, the verse says here, verse 5, that the churches are encouraged. But it also says they're encouraged to the point of growth. Growth. They're encouraged to the point of growth. Verse 5 says, So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Now I want to make a point about that last phrase there because I don't don't take, you know, there's there's these constant mentions throughout the book of Acts. I had to Google it because I wasn't going to scan the whole book and find them all, but there's 28 mentions of the churches growing Numerically growing, people being saved, the church is growing. It even lists the numbers many times, right? Um, Luke takes pains to mention this. And and I don't take those mentions of the church is growing as just kind of like simple, kind of neutral historical facts. I think as you read this, and as you even read verse 5, Luke is rejoicing over the fact that the churches not only are being strengthened, but are growing. In numbers, Um, I think we just have to be careful that you know we're so weary of the ditch, and it is a ditch of you know today's kind of modern evangelical uh, church growth schemes and movements, right? That that we don't want to fall in the other group and become what some have called like the frozen chosen, right? Where we think it's just us worshiping the Lord together, and and that's all that's all that we ever need. Well. I think the constant mentions of this in the book of Acts is that it's a good thing and it's God's desire that his churches be filled. I think that that goes hand in hand with the very um, great commission itself. Go into all the nations and make disciples. Well, what is a disciple? A disciple is a church member. As I said, Paul didn't just evangelize, right, and then make converts and just leave them to themselves themselves. No, he wants to go back. He wants to visit them. He wants to shepherd them. They're going to be in a church. They're going to be pastored. Um, So to make, you can't make disciples and not make church members. They should go hand in hand. Um, And I think we need to keep that in mind when we're evangelizing as well, is that the desire should be to bring these souls, if not into our church, into a good church. We shouldn't just preach to them and leave them. And that's some of my motive, like with the gospel tracks that have, you know, our church's website on there, that's I want to leave them some kind of reference of where worship is happening, where the preaching is happening. That's some of my mindset behind that kind of stuff. Um, so, so either way, Luke is encouraged. Luke, is, Luke mentions, mentions the strengthening of the faith. He mentions the growth of the church. And so the missionaries so far already have visited Syria, Cilicia, Derby, and Lystra. And they continue west. They now have Brother Timothy on board. And they're going to continue their journey here. And in verse 6, it gets really interesting here. This is where it gets, uh, it's different. Let's see how it's different. Verse 6 says, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And the Spirit doesn't only intervene here. Look at verse 7. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. That's interesting language, right? That's different language than we've seen in the book of Acts for how the apostles are led. I mean, we all would agree and assume that the Apostle Paul is always being led by the Spirit. Um, He's walking by the Spirit. He's full of the Spirit and all the normal ways we use that, that language. But when you read Luke's language here concerning how the Spirit is intervening at this point, um, this seems to be exceptional. This seems to be a very definitive leading and guiding of the Spirit. It's more of the miraculous level leading. It's, it's, it's more supernatural than all of the Spirit's work is supernatural. But this seems to be more uh, manifestly supernatural as the Spirit is speaking here. It says, The Spirit forbade them to go into Asia the Spirit of Jesus. Interesting. I'm not going to get into that, but interesting way to describe the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. That's interesting. Um, But the Spirit of Jesus does not allow them to go into Bithynia. And so my mind thought of the reference from Proverbs, Proverbs 69, you know, man plans his way, but the Lord directs the steps. That's certainly what's happening here. Paul was hey, we're going to Asia, let's go. Spirit says, nope, nope, y'all are going somewhere else. And, and, and certainly you don't want to take um, the Spirit forbidding them to go into Asia, somehow God being prejudiced to, to Asians or Bithynians or something like that. That's certainly as if you don't want to think that God doesn't want to save the people in those those areas, even though I would caveat that by saying God is certainly within His rights to judge a nation if He wants and prevent the gospel from from going there, He has He has done that in time. But but the gospel will go to Asia um, in in Paul's very next uh, missionary journey, in his third missionary journey, he's going to go to places like Laodicea, Colossae, Philadelphia, Sardis, Thyatira. All these places we know we've read about that the gospel goes to, Paul will will eventually make it to Asia. So it's not that God doesn't want his gospel in Asia. um, He just doesn't want it there yet. He just doesn't want it there at this exact time. And so these things are happening according to God's timing. In God's timing, what we refer to as God's providence, God is sending Paul to a very particular place here And he's going to do it through a very particular means. Um, Look at verse 9. The means here is almost as exceptional. It's almost as mysterious and supernatural as the means by which he forbade Paul to go to Asia. Verse 9 says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul is being directed here by a vision in the night this this man a man of Macedonia Paul somehow knows where this man is is from maybe he can detect in the language and the dialect or something but this man is asking for help. And what kind of help is this man asking for? Well, he's not asking for Paul to come over and, and uh, utilize his tent-making skills so that they can have some nice tents to live in. He's not asking for clean, fresh water, show us how to dig wells. This man is, in this vision, is asking the Apostle Paul to come and to bring the most important thing that there is in the world, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, the apostles understand this. Look at verse ten. It says, When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So they understood what, what help was being requested from this this vision, and, and they immediately head out to Macedonia. But they don't head out to Macedonia without before picking up a new missionary there in verse 10. Did you, did you pick up on that, the new missionary in verse 10? Who, who's the new missionary that just got picked up in verse 10 there? You say Luke? Right. It's Luke. And how do we know that? Because you see the, the plural being used there. Immediately... We sought to go into Macedonia. And even following that, it said God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And, and these plural pronouns here are actually uh, very recognized in the book of Acts. The commentators, there's, there's three sections There's three sections in the book of Acts where plural pronouns start being used. And instead of saying Paul went here or Paul went there, it says we went here and we went there. And so these are called, uh, the the commentators actually call these the we sections of Luke. And so these are the sections where Luke is actually joining the missionary endeavor. He's including himself uh, in what's happening. And so it's very interesting that you know, Luke kind of does it in a very subtle way. You might not even recognize it, but he's he's definitely including himself uh, starting here. And he'll be with the group um, to, to verse 17 of this same chapter. And, and it seems like Luke lives, uh, probably lives in or around the city of Troas because when the apostles come to Troas or leave Troas, this is where Luke picks up and falls off from the narrative so he probably that's probably where he's from and that's when he joins and leaves leaves the missionary journeys but but Luke has joined the group and so now we have Paul, Silas, Timothy and Luke. That's the missionary band and that's a good group, right? That's some that's a missionary team right there and we're actually going to leave off there for the sake of time on this mission We've got a good crew put together for Paul's second missionary journey here. Um, next time we're together, we'll see, uh, as we continue in chapter 16, we'll see the conversion of Lydia. We're going to see Paul and Silas get arrested. That's going to lead to the uh, the Philippian jailer uh, being converted, uh, if you remember all of those scenes. So that we'll do that next time. But let me just end by way of application here. What kind of application? And I have to kind of be uh, intentional about the application, you know, because we're we're reading through a historical narrative. It's like reading through a lot of the Old Testament. It's not like Galatians or Hebrews where the, the- theological application is there. We kind of have to be intentional about it when you're just reading through uh, a narrative like, and we're going so fast. Um, but the first point of application is is the one I mentioned in my prayer. It's the one Brother Raymond recognized in his prayer, is that as we're seeing the life of the Apostle Paul, and I would say we probably should, and it's helpful to broaden that out, it wasn't just the Apostle Paul. You have all these other brothers risking their lives for the sake of the gospel. Um, These men who are, in one sense, no different than us, um, these men are, are putting their lives on the line to spread the gospel to minister to the churches to defend the gospel these these brothers love the church and these have to be put there at least in part as setting an example for us of how we should love the church we should give our lives to the church we should sacrifice for the church not necessarily not all of us will be missionaries um, but if not a missionary uh, the desire should be to support missionaries. And, and at the least, at a local level, the, the one another's are in the Bible for us to uh, love one another in all the ways the Bible says that we should love one another. So we all have a part. We can all love the church of God with the zeal that Paul had. Um, and we can all do that, in essence, in different ways. Um, what about this leading of the spirit that took place here in this chapter. Um, The way Paul is directed around, the way it's the supernatural events, it's really unmistakable, it's undeniable, these manifestations that Paul gets in in directing where and how he's supposed to uh, to go and how he's supposed to minister. This is one of those things, I think, when, when you're studying the book of Acts, the question always comes up. As you're studying the early church, are, are the things that are happening, and you have to almost event by event and, and issue by issue, you have to decide: is this descriptive? Is it simply descriptive, or the, or is this prescriptive? Is, is what's happening with Paul in the early church in this instance, where the Spirit is, you know, giving him visions, and you know, a person's telling him, "Hey, we need this. Come here," and the Spirit forbidding him, you know, to go in certain places. Um, Is this just a description of what happened to the Apostle Paul, or is this saying this is how the Christian life should be? Um, That's a question we always have to ask, and it's a question that gets asked when these kinds of uh, events happen in the book of Acts. I think um, most of you know me well enough to know that I consider this to be an exceptional um, event in the way the Spirit's choosing to intervene in Paul's mission here. I mean, even in the book of Acts, this seems to be exceptional, and the Spirit's doing crazy things all throughout the book, but yet, in this instance, it, it seems to be exceptional, but um, with that being said, even to throw, throw a bone out to my continuation as brothers here, you know, is it possible that if somebody is 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 so Living by faith in such an exceptional way and risking their very life for the gospel to minister to places that have not had the gospel, is it possible that with that exceptional exceptional uh, walk of faith and leap of faith that the spirit would work exceptionally in that person 's life i wouldn 't say it 's impossible i wouldn 't say that 's not possible. It almost seems fitting to me that the Spirit would provide. That exceptional work of faith was an exceptional help. But how can we know that's true or not? Well, I guess you might have to walk out in exceptional leaps of faith like the Apostle Paul did and see if the Spirit is still doing that or not. I know it seems like I've I know a lot of missionaries who have gone to those lengths, maybe not to the lengths that the Apostle Paul went, but surely left left this world for the sake of the gospel and I haven't heard stories like this but I have heard stories of the spirit working and so I wouldn't rule it out if somebody was to set out into some unknown country to bring the gospel and they brought back a story like that I I don't think I would be able to tell them that didn't happen maybe the spirit did bless that that act of faith he did for Paul here Um, So lastly, lastly, what we see here in Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 16, because the Spirit forbade Paul, kept Paul from going into Asia, and directed him through this vision to go into what is known as Macedonia, which is modern-day Europe, because the Spirit of God did this, all of us who are now sitting here have had the gospel brought to them because the gospel was brought into Europe. We now have the gospel and maybe this is a good time. And I probably, probably should have done this earlier, but because, because as, as I said, I totally understand going through historical narrative is a little bit harder to stay focused on and to be encouraged by. And, you know, it's just different than the epistles. Um, But, but think about this. So Why is God recording all of this history, all of this church history? Church history is boring to a lot of people. Even seminary students are, like, bored by church history. You shouldn't be. Um, It is kind of repetitive. What we're going to see in the book of Acts is uh, preaching of the gospel, going to a new city, conversions, persecution, new city, preaching. Same thing, over. It's very repetitive. That's the book of Acts. Um, So, in essence, it kind of gets boring But what the book of Acts is, is is God is recording for us our spiritual ancestry. And we can see where our spiritual ancestors, how our brothers in Christ, how we became a brother in Christ and how we relate. How did we become brothers in Christ? Well, it's because the gospel came to Europe. It's because the gospel was brought to us, namely by the apostle Paul and these other brothers. I mean, a lot of people... Maybe it's the older you get; it seems like, but a lot of people spend a lot of time. They even spend money, they even shed blood to send it in and get their DNA tested to 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 what do you call it? Like track your an, your natural ancestry, right? And they're very proud of it, and they're you know they detail with the books and everything, and they send out the emails and all of that stuff. That's just for your natural ancestry. But here, God is showing us the the history the history of of behind how. Spiritual ancestry uh, is brought to, to the world and, and specifically now brought to people like a lot of us. The gospel brought life to Abraham. It, it Through Abraham came to Israel. Through Israel came to Paul. Through Paul came to Europe. Through Europe we finally, most of us, descend from Europe. I mean, the gospel already went to, to Africa in chapter 8. I should have pointed out there, right? Um, the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch is converted and with that guy's zeal, we don't get the details of how that gospel spread. He was, you know, by himself. He went back to Africa um, with the gospel converted, but when you in Acts chapter 8, you see his zeal. He already had the word of God. He was reading the book of Isaiah, so surely that gospel spread through that, that, that eunuch um, and the gospel spread through Africa already. Acts chapter 8, but Now, Acts chapter 16, finally, because in Macedonia, Paul's going to what we call Greece, right? So the gospel's going to Europe, and it's from Europe that eventually the the Protestant Reformation, we talk about the Protestant Reformation with the kids, that's where the, the gospel will be restored. In Europe, in Europe's where the Bible will be translated into English, and for us, the, once we have the Bible in our language, the rest is history for us. So let that encourage you as we work through this large book of Acts. That that's what we're tracing. We're tracing how the good news is spread throughout the world. And now we get to kind of bring it home for us who are of European descent of how the gospel came to us. It was through these missionary journeys. So let's pray. Well Father, we um, Father, we're blessed more than most, Lord, that we we get to enjoy and study literally every word of of these books, Lord, of Hebrews and Galatians and the book of Acts, Lord, and we have so much truth, Lord, and Our lives should be so much different, Lord. We pray that your spirit, Lord, would work in us, Lord, that would bring fruit from all this truth. Lord, we know the Bible says we'll be held accountable for all of this truth, Lord, and we want that day to be a a good day for us. We want to enjoy rewards for all of eternity for what we've done with your word and your gospel and for your namesake, Lord, so... Let these studies be good for us, Lord. Let, let it be fruitful. Lord, bless this church, Lord. I pray that, that it would, in fact, not only be strengthened in the faith, but, but would grow, Lord, as, as these churches were blessed to be able to do. Lord, have, have mercy on us, Lord, and, and continue to watch over us. We thank you for keeping us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Let's take up the supper And today, I actually want you, I don't normally require you, normally I try to allow you to rest where I'm at in the Bible, but turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We normally are in 1 Corinthians already because, as you know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that's where Paul lays out for us the practice and the procedure of the Lord's Supper but I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. And this is a text worth turning to. It's very important for actually many reasons. But today I'm going to relate it to the supper because when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, obviously what we're doing is we're looking back and we're being reminded of and we're drawn to the historical act of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, he's laying down his life for his people and, and you can't get beyond and, and you should recognize when, when you look at the bread, when you look at the wine, that this is directly recalling the, the brutality of his death. Jesus did not die quietly in his sleep. Jesus was brutally murdered. His flesh was opened up. His flesh was torn. His blood was spilled, and that's that's the imagery that's given to us in the supper. And what's the result of this brutal death and this brutal sacrifice? Well the result of that sacrifice is for us good news. It's salvation, it's forgiveness of sins, it's union with him, it's union with him in his resurrection, it's all of these things and Normally, when we think of forgiveness of sins, we always reference forgiveness of sins, but we normally reference it in this very vague, general sense, right? Like our sins have been forgiven, and that's true, and that's good. But at times, the Apostle Paul gets very specific. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9, really 10 and 11, get very specific, and I want you to put your eyes on it, because Paul's going to go to the point of listing specific sins here 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9 Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God Do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is a, a bad news, good news section of scripture. And that's the bad news. That is the bad news. And, and when we look back at our lives prior to Christ... We can all see ourselves somewhere in that list. And if you don't think you see yourself, well, if you were not worshiping the Lord, whatever it was you were worshiping, because you are a worshiper, we're made to worship, we worship. And if it's not the one true and living God, you're worshiping either yourself or some sin or some false god, but you were an idolater. Prior to Christ, you were an idolater. You're in this list. And you would not have inherited the kingdom of God in your sin. So we can all find ourselves in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and that's the bad news. Don't deceive yourself. The sec- all these people will not inherit the kingdom of God, but what's the good news? Verse 11 is the good news. Paul is able to say to the church in Corinth, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, And by the Spirit of our God. And so what we're celebrating today in the Lord's Supper, the the death of Jesus Christ, because of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of the renewing work of the Spirit, we were some of those things. That's what we're celebrating. That's what the death of Jesus Christ did. It gives you salvation. It gives you forgiveness of all of those sins. The very worst of sins, When you read through that list, it's some of the worst sins there are, but because of the death of Christ, we have forgiveness of those sins, and that is very good news. And so, think about that good news as we partake of the supper, that your worst of sins, and don't be afraid to recall them to mind. I know a lot of times we like to leave them, and that's what I was saying in the general category of, yeah, I used to sin real bad. But if you think about the depths of your depravity and some of the worst sins that you committed and and they're heinous and they're shameful, but the good news is that's what the death of Jesus Christ gained. The worst of sinners, the Apostle Paul who wrote this was a murderer. He was murdering Christians. Um, You probably were not murdering Christians, but your sins can be forgiven and you can rejoice that the shedding of blood and the tearing of the Son of God's flesh brought us forgiveness of sins. And if you're not a Christian and you have not had those sins forgiven, this is a symbol of where the forgiveness of sins is found. And so it was very good and right that we looked at with the children today. um, Solus Christus. Our faith is in Christ alone and nowhere else. You're not going to find forgiveness for your sins anywhere else other than the death of Jesus Christ. And so it should be your desire. It's almost as if the Apostle Peter could have said, you know how he said, uh, we must be saved. Well, you must take the Lord's Supper. If you're not taking the Lord's Supper, that means that you have not even been affirmed of being a part of the body of Christ. And that you should wonder, why am I not being affirmed as a Christian? Why is my profession not convincing whoever, my parents, my pastor, whoever, um, that I am in fact a Christian? But you must be a Christian. You must be saved. You need to be taking the supper. You need to be a member of the church. Um, the, the church is the body of Christ. If you're not a member of the body of Christ, that should terrify you. That you're outside of the covenant. You're, you're outside looking in. And you, and you may be a child, you may come to church, you may feel like you're, you know, you're in, you're part of the covenant. Well, if you're not partaking of the supper, you're not. And if you are a Christian you're not partaking of the supper, that's a whole separate issue. Um, work with your parents through that issue. Um, if you're older and not partaking, that's not a good thing either. That needs to be worked out. But, but if you're not taking the supper, if you have not been baptized... If you're not a member of a church, that is, is a scary place to be. And so the good news is um, it's not hard to get where all of us, there's nothing special about any of us. We get to enjoy the Lord's Supper. We get to enjoy the, the fellowship of being a church member. We get to take the supper by grace. None of us were good enough people to put, in, put off our sins in and of ourselves Um, We sin just like you do. We understand sin. Your sin is nothing strange to us. um, But that sin needs to be forgiven. And so if you're not a Christian, let this be a reminder of what you need to be partaking of. And we pray that you would. But let's let's play a song and, and let's think about the good news of all of the sins that Jesus Christ purchased for us on that cross. in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul leaves the instructions for the supper, beginning in verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in in which he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's first pray for the bread. We'll pray for the wine. Father, we thank you for forgiveness of sins. We thank you for sending the Lord Jesus to do what we could not do, to keep your righteous standards, to to fight off the devil, to overcome every temptation. Lord Jesus, you are the righteous one, and we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that by faith we can gain union with you and we can have fellowship with you and we can have forgiveness of sins and we can be seen by the Father in your light and in your glory. And what good news for sinners. We thank you that it's by faith and not by works. You have been so good to us and we, we honor your death today and remember you and your sacrifice, and we thank you in, in your name. Amen. Let's take the bread. It says, in the same way, also he took the cup. After supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's remember the shedding of Christ's blood. Let's take the cup. For as as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.